You're listening to the Up In Your Business Podcast, episode 041. On this show, we talk about ambition, the power of humility, and accepting the possibility of plain old dumb luck. It's about the way in which our ego sabotages us. Even though, ironically, it might first propel us to succeed, it then seeks to undermine that very success. Welcome to the Up In Your Business Podcast, building you to do business better. This show is about intention, transparency, and insights from business professionals sharing their personal business. Discover what they've learned the hard way so you don't have to. Empowering a new breed of self-aware leadership. Here's your host, Angus Nelson. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. I'm your host, Angus Nelson, and I am super pumped that you're here. If this is your first time, welcome, welcome. Today, we are unpacking a book called Ego is the Enemy, and I want to jump into it as quickly as possible because I think this book and uh, this conversation has the uh, possibility of really striking some rich and deep chords with you. And I wholeheartedly believe that this book has the capacity to set you free in ways that you don't even know. And the essence of self-sabotage and the essence of our limiting beliefs and our mindset, I think those are all critical components to some of the underlying elements of this conversation. And I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this book. I even more so enjoyed talking to Ryan and and kind of throwing things at him that maybe he wasn't even expecting. Because um, I actually read the book from cover to cover. I dissected it. I highlighted it. I, I turned pages over. I really annihilated this book and devoured it. And um, hopefully you'll do the same. So today we are talking to a strategist and expert on Stoic philosophy, among many other subjects. And he dropped out of college at 19 to apprentice under Robert Greene, the author of The 48 Laws of Power. And then later he went on to serve as the director of marketing for American Apparel. Ryan's written four books uh, previously, and most recently, The Obstacle is the Way, uh, has been translated into 17 languages and has a cult following among NFL coaches, world-class athletes, and a number of different personalities. Today, we are talking to Ryan Holiday. Let's jump into that interview right now. Ryan, what's the uh, most fantastic thing you've done in the last two weeks? I was in Amsterdam uh, last week, and uh, I spent some time with Casey Neistat, who's the vlogger, and he ended up um, wakeboarding through the canals of, of Venice, or sorry, of Amsterdam, while I was uh, forced to film. So that was uh, quite an experience. It was not something I ever expected to see in my life, <laughs> especially in person, but you never know where life will take you. Uh, it reminds me of the guys who were um, snowboarding in the streets of New York. It's the same guy. There you go. There you yeah. go. 
That's awesome. And did he get arrested this time or at least pulled over no, by the cops? No, it was all permitted, so it worked out. From Canals in Amsterdam to Ego is the Enemy. Welcome to just the story of my life, as I was sharing with you right before we came on. Um, I really identified with this book, and I'm looking through you know, your history and what you've done. I work in tech, so I'm familiar um, with some of your work already. And so to pick up this book, first of all, we don't talk about things like this. Like, sure. You're, you're in taboo territory. Um, and furthermore, the I think the choice of title was far more powerful than the essence of its content because okay. very few people would want to talk about transparency, vulnerability, humility, and some of the principles in this book. Can you share with us how did this all come about? No, it's it's interesting that you brought that up because originally uh, the book was going to be about humility, and then the working title was "Keep Your Identity Small," which is a line from from Paul Graham, who's an essayist who I really like. Uh, he's the founder of Y Combinator. But I sort of found that um, that's not it's, that's not what anyone aspires to, right? Um, and and so there's a certain reservation about those topics. And so if I, I wanted to. I wanted to attack something that would catch people's attention. And um, there, there's a quote I have in the book from from Reverend Sam Wells, who was talking about how we, we all want to do these great things and we want to be humble. The problem is we don't think that humility can get us to where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to I wanted to dispute that entirely. Right. I, I wanted to make it clear that, in fact, People who are very accomplished and have done amazing things um, not only are humble, but they were successful precisely because of that humility and that self-awareness and and the the war they fought against their ego. So for me, I wanted wanted to do all the things that most business books don't do, and um, I, I guess I was willing to sort of take some risks to get there. And furthermore, you also wrote a book that most business books don't aspire to as well. And the fact that you pulled out a lot of literature, you brought out history, you brought out, I mean, the way you told all of this, um, I had to actually get a dictionary out for a couple of words. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I, I don't take that as a compliment. I, I, I mean, I think you try to, you try to write in, in terms that people can understand and are obvious. I think one of the things that I don't like about business books is you'll, you'll read something and they'll be like, they'll make some pretty major statement about, you know, life or, you know, business or whatever. And then there, the, the evidence will be like a friend of mine recently, you know, Mm -hmm. or they'll be like, uh, so-and-so who sent me an email once said, and, and I'm like, I want it rooted in something bigger than that. Something slightly more rigorous than a random anecdotal, you know, uh, piece of information. And so I, I try to, go to history and um and and that's sort of how I was taught to write so i i try to i try to ground it in as close to a universal theme in the human experience as i can yeah and um I, honestly i th- i think it made you come off as really smart um so <laughs> well that was I, the whole idea obviously <laughs> speaking of ego yeah <laughs> right um and I think that was actually kind of the temptation of this is I think this book is going to serve you really well from a, a success standpoint because this is the kind of stuff I think is is palatable. 
Um, and so get ready to test your own ego because I think this one's probably going to be one of your more successful works. Um, and what I love here, too, is that you poured your heart into it. Um, it's easy to tell. So let's back up. Okay. What was it um, in your observations? And obviously you share a little bit about this, especially in the back of the book of how you actually lived through this watching other people. But even before that, as you were growing up and experiencing some of the wrestlings with your own self-talk, et cetera, et cetera, what is it that you kind of started the inklings of this even before you knew it was going to become something? I was fortunate enough to to be successful much earlier than maybe I thought. Like, look, I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. I didn't start Facebook in my college dorm, but I, I dropped out. You know, I, I worked for a number of really successful people. I was a director of marketing in a publicly traded company, you know, right around the time I could legally drink. I published my first book at 24. Um, so when you experience that success, there's sort of two things. One, you realize... Um, that if you don't get control of yourself, it's, this is all very precarious and it could go away in two seconds, right? Like, yeah. you know, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you make the wrong choice. Um, no one's exactly rooting for you, right? So I remember being very conscious of ego along the way, seeing how alienating it could be and the problems that it could cause. So that was sort of a big part of it. But then the other part is that you know, when you are successful and you're, you know, somewhat in the public eye, not that I'm like a celebrity or anything, but, you know, when people write things about you, they start to tell your story. And you hear that enough times, you can start to take that as fact, right? You can, you can, you, you start to have a, you, you can start to substitute the reality of your marketing or your brand for the universe in which you actually live. And so I, I could, I could feel that pull and that sway as well. And, and, and it was only in seeing, you know, some people who are much more successful than I, who, who accomplish things, you know, that I could really only dream of fall prey to some of those things and watch how quickly their empires sort of tumbled over that it, it it just really fascinated me with this topic. It, it made me think there's something here. I want to explore this. And it was just interesting to me how often it would be like, look, I'm the 20 year old, 20 year old in the room and I'm having to play the adult here. I'm having right, to play right. like the, the voice of reason. That was strange. And so um, it, it just, it sent me to, to history and psychology and philosophy to study this more. And eventually a, a book came out of it. So for you to have that kind of clarity or maturity, did you have a mentor in your life? Did you have some third-party counselor, therapist, or did you have incredible parents who sat back proudly and said, boy, our Ryan, he's a good kid? Uh, look, a little bit of all of the above. Uh, I certainly didn't get that from my parents, but I, I had a number of mentors who were really great, who centered me, who taught me a lot, and who sort of showed me the, you know, what not to do. And then I... I had other mentors who I really looked up to who sort of did exactly what you're not supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So I had both positive influences and negative influences, and I sort of watched both of those. Um, you know, I, I was a director of marketing in American Apparel, and, you know, that, that company declared bankruptcy last year. No, this year, actually. Um, and that, that was sad and unfortunate to watch. Um, 
especially someone who I admired and worked with for so long to, to see them essentially lose everything. That was, mm-hmm. that's a sobering experience. So I had mentors like that were sort of showing you precisely what you should not do and the cost of doing so. And then I had other mentors like Robert Greene, who, you know, basically has his act together mm-hmm. and it sort of showed me, you know, what, how one handles success and, uh, you know, ambition and, and, and life and all these things. And I, I like what you kind of clarified at the end of the book too. Um, and for you who are listening, um, this book goes on sale June 14th. Uh, this will probably release somewhere around that date. Um, the thought being that can you experience this paradox of being humble taking little credit, um, not necessarily having the aspirations of fame and grandeur, but at the same time having dreams and goals and, you know, some destiny that you're trying to fulfill. And I love how you connected those two. And I just want to read just part of a paragraph that you wrote uh, in the prologue I have highlighted. And I, as I was telling Ryan before we got on this call, I thrashed this book. It's, it's dog-eared. It's highlighted. That's really, by the way, like the highest compliment that you can pay an author. Like I think people are very – they're way too delicate and protective of books. Like mm-hmm. it's flattering to see a book sort of torn to shreds. Even if they hate it, it means they actually interacted with it yeah. and took the time. So I appreciate that. Well, you can see I have a little little book collection, not nearly as big as it looks like behind you. But um, I, I do like my books. I do have an e-reader. I hardly use it. So I have to like interact with the material. So here's what I, I, I want to highlight here. And it says, um, I'm, I'm, again, I'm kind of jumping in the middle of it. it says, but it's always nice to be made to feel special or empowered or inspired. But that's not the aim of this book. Instead, I've tried to arrange these pages so that you might end in the same place I did when I finished writing it. That is, you will think less of yourself. And I hope you will be less invested in the story you tell about your own specialness. And as a result, you will be liberated to accomplish the world-changing work you've set out to achieve. Powerful paradox there. It, it, no, it it is a it is a paradox. You're right, and and how does one? It's like how does one do ambitious things without being an ambitious person? Sort of using both sort of connotations of that word. I think that's incredibly difficult. How does one? How does one do things that are special, but not feel like they're special and better than everyone else? Or how is one the best at what they do? without walking around like they're better than everyone else. I think that's not only is that tough, but that's particularly impressive when you see it. And so I I wanted to focus on people who've done extraordinary things, but acted like ordinary people. I, I just, I, I love that. And as you go throughout the book and you tell the stories of leaders back to, Cleopatra, you know, to um, the pyramids. I mean, and you tell stories of uh, Genghis Khan, and and we go through all of that. And it's sometimes it's hard because it's it's mythology to us, you know, sure. for us to connect and see the humanity or the struggle. But I do come back to the psychological term is the 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 
pain versus pleasure principle okay. to where we, we, we chase after the things that we think will give us pleasure, but only to experience pain. And the things that we perceive to be painful actually give us great pleasure. Yeah, I th I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I there's a there's a quote I have from Napoleon. I think he's saying like, you know, great men have sought happiness and found fame. And so it's like we we sort of think like, hey, if I do this, if I accomplish this, if I win this, or if I make this, then I will be happy and find meaning. Mm. And that doesn't usually. As someone who's done, you know, not incredible things, but I've I've done a thing or two, you tend to find that it it it's never what you expect, mm -hmm. um, because it's it's outside you. These things. Uh, there's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He's saying things can't touch the soul, and so he means like if you feel bad about yourself, having a billion dollars in the bank is not going to change how you feel about yourself. Because you're still going to feel crappy, you're still going to feel inferior, you're still going to feel worthless, whatever it is. Um, and it's the same. It's the same with like, hey, I'll be happy as soon as I get this off my plate, or hey, I'll be less stressed as soon as I finish this, or whatever. It never happens. Mm -hmm. I remember I was a kid. I remember my parents made me run like track or field or something in middle school, and so it was like two hours every day after school. And so I remember thinking, like, when it was over, like, hey, now I'm going to have two extra hours to do whatever I want after school. And it's like, no, you, ne you never actually get the time, right? The daylight savings or whatever gives you an extra hour, but you're never like, oh, the day's so much longer now. It just disappears into the same, into the same life that you already had. And so I, I think it's the same thing with accomplishments, which is why, you know, oftentimes – people are incredibly motivated to do things because they feel so terrible inside. Mm -hmm. And so in a weird way, the worse you feel, the more motivated you are to do extraordinary things. And then ironically or paradoxically, the more disappointing those incredible things turn out to be. Mm -hmm. I, I always say that, um, you know, it's the difference between living in the past and living in, in the future neither one of them fixed today. Sure. You know, in totally. the past, it's either we wish it was, you know, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, and he could yeah. throw that football a quarter mile. You remember that? It was the good old days, right? Or, you know, like my own story, where I have elements of shame or guilt or, you know, embarrassment. And, and if I allow those things to take root, I'll only recreate the same cycles of sabotage. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think, you know, if I was to sum up this book, it's about the way in which our ego sabotages us, mm -hmm. even though, ironically, it might first propel us to succeed, it then seeks to undermine that very success. And what, who was the, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Howard Hughes. Yes. And you tell the story about one of his assistants or something of that nature saying, oh, you led such a great life and... And he goes on to say, after you had my life for a week, you'd want to give it back. Yeah, he's saying, like, look, you think that it's so awesome for me, but you really have no idea. And I, look, that's that's jived with my own experiences, you know, sort of being called to meet with some of these people you find or, or spending lots of time with them. You find 
man, I wouldn't trade places with them for all the money in the world. And sometimes they have mm-hmm. it. You know, sometimes they do have all the money in the world. And you realize that it can't it can't fix what's broken. Only only the person can. So there's, uh, you know, the, the compensation, right? So, so the guy who drives the big truck, you know, he drives by. Sure. And, and I had this joke with my buddies when we grew up. We'd always say, hey, sorry about your penis. Right. You know, like it's kind of the similar yeah. thing. I know that's a, kind of a stretch, but it's like sure. people who have frailty, insecurity, fear will rise to compensate over that through some kind of a bigness or yes. what have you. <sighs> I hate yeah. that stuff. I and we were saying right before the call, like I work in tech. I yeah. know influencers, thought leaders, whatever. That I love them. I, I love them as people. Um, they're charming. They're funny. But I watch their life and watch some of the choices they make, and I'm like, you are destroying your inside, and you don't even know it. I think I think that's exactly right. And, and look, that's a great coming to that realization is a natural cure for jealousy. I was writing about this recently. It's like. Um, you have to realize that you can't have, oftentimes you can't have one without the other. So it's that, that willingness to inflict destruction on oneself that also helps them accomplish these things. And so when you feel, it's like when you feel jealousy or envy towards someone, you have to look at the whole picture. You can't Mm. just want their financial success or their reputational accomplishments or their, you know, position of influence. You have to say, Okay, what did they trade to get this? What mm-hmm. what was is that a is that full bargain worth it to me? And usually it's not. Sometimes it is, and that's someone to admire and to look up up to and emulate. But mm-hmm. it's almost it almost never is. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to pull out something here um, that uh, you said Victor uh, Frankel had observed. And he said that man is pushed by drives, but he is pulled by values. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that? Well, it's naive to think that we are not animals. We are animals and we have biological drives and urges and we are wired a certain way. And, And that's a reality. We are capable of evil. We are capable of, of, of horrible things. Um, and we just have natural inclinations, right? We want to do the least amount of work for the most reward and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but what's so extraordinary about human beings is that we were given this consciousness and this mind that enables us to actually question those urges and drives. Not completely. We don't Just thinking about something doesn't magically give you control of it. But I think what what Frankel is saying, and you know, Victor Frankel, if has experienced or had experience as being a, a brilliant psychologist who then was in three different Nazi concentration camps, he experienced the full uh, human experience in in all its good ways and very bad ways. I think what he's saying is we have these urges and drives, but that's not an excuse because we also have principles and values and philosophy which can counteract those drives or balance mm-hmm. them out. And I think I think that's what I was trying to do in this book in, you know, in my own small way is is to say, look, the ego is natural. Um we are these urges are in some ways adaptive and beneficial, but are they worth it? Mm-hmm. And and let's question that. 
And you said here the, and I want to say Janine, you might have to help me on, on the quote of who said this, but the worst disease which can afflict business executives in their work is not as popularity supposed alcoholism, it's egotism. Yeah, so that's that's uh, Harold Geenan, who was a, a CEO, a, a wildly successful CEO in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. Um, and and what what he was saying, you're sort of, so he was a CEO sort of in the Mad Men era, mm-hmm. and everyone was thinking, you know, it's hey, people have a drinking problem, it's clouding their judgment. Ego is what really clouds our judgment. It's what, <clears throat> like when you look at, for instance, when when you look at the business data, it shows that almost. All mergers and acquisitions are a bad idea. They almost never work. Mm-hmm. Like it's as close to a law of business as you could find. Um, and yet CEOs do them anyway, right? And it's it's the same. It's the same. Hey, being drunk makes you a bad driver. Um, you know, being drunk on your own power or genius makes you think that you are the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. That you know better. That because you, that that you have somehow looked at the evidence. And found that even though everyone says you're wrong, you know that you're right. And so I, I think that's what he's saying. And, and look, as the CEO, you're the, the buck stops with you. You're the last guy. And so if, you're, if you've given yourself over to your ego, that's who's in charge of your company. That's very scary. And, you know, I, I work with executives in my day job from Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 across yeah. the globe. And, you know, innovation is our space. Mm-hmm. And yet people who work in innovation are, I mean, bless their hearts, <laughs> a good Southern phrase. They're yeah. frustrated most of the time because companies who are big and grandiose are pervasive with people who are in in light of this egotism, drunk on their own whatever, mm-hmm. and wanting to feel safe and stalwart in the way things have always been, because as long as it's, they know they have all the answers, they're the one decision makers, then they're going to keep the brakes on the new ideas, the young buck who has the aspirations, and actually stall innovation, even within some of these bigger companies. Yeah, it's like, look, your job is to do this thing. But you can't do that thing because you're in the way, and I think that's a people find that themselves in that position quite often in in, in a lot of different capacities. It's uh, it's I mean, think about what the concept of disruption is. It says this industry has grown so fossilized and imprisoned by its own success that we basically have to blow it up, hmm. um, and and that's the unfortunately the cycle of business. Do you struggle meeting new people, attending events and networking? I've created an ebook to give you confidence, helping you connect with credibility and effectiveness. If you want a free copy of that ebook, you can simply get it by going to angusnelson.com forward slash networking. When we inspire, uh, aspire, we must resist the impulse to reverse engineer success from other people's stories. When we achieve our own, we must resist the desire to pretend that everything unfolded exactly as we'd planned. There was no grand narrative, and you should remember 
you were there when it happened. Holy cow, I read that and I'm like, I can't tell you how much of my life is based in serendipity and yeah. chance and luck. And I have to believe that most other people are doing the same thing, totally, totally faking it, totally pretending like they had the corner on the market and they're full of crap. <laughs> That's right, right. Um, look, you know, no football team that wins the Super Bowl goes, hey, we shouldn't have even been here if that ref hadn't blown that call in, you know, game seven of uh, of the season, right? They're never like, hey, you know, uh, we we should have, uh, if if this had happened or that had happened, we wouldn't have even been here. You don't, you don't look at it that way. You look at it as this is exactly what was supposed to happen. I deserve this. I earned this. I made this happen. So we don't want to look at, you know, and I think you've seen this somewhat politically recently, like no one wants to look at, say, no one wants to look at the way in which they were advantaged or privileged. You only want to look at someone else and blame them for their own failures or problems because it makes you feel good about yourself. And 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 look, that's that's ego embodied. I think mm-hmm. um, a, a humble person sees where success uh was a result of preparation and design meeting luck mm-hmm. and and is is willing to to give plenty of credit to fortuitous circumstances mm-hmm. so that kind of kind of begs the question what do you think about leadership today particularly our westernized culture and how we understand it Ah man, that's a that's a big question. Look, I I think when it comes to leadership, I like this idea of of servant leadership. Um, that you're, I think, so many leaders forget that they serve at the privilege or the behest of the people, not the other way around. Right? Um, you work for us; we don't work for you. And if you can remember that, humility and and is much easier, and ego is is sort of naturally uh, suppressed. But if you think, hey, I was born for this, uh, they need me, I'm the shepherd and they are the sheep, all of a sudden you've, you've you sort of inherently created a sort of one up, one down relationship. And I think that's that lends itself to abuse, that lends itself to, you know, big mistakes, that lends itself to, to sort of misreading things, bad priorities, certainly. And how do you think of that in terms of what you alluded to before even the political climate today yeah i mean look does 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 donald trump want the presidency because he thinks he can do great things for america or does he want the presidency because he thinks it's suitable for his you know stature and importance and brilliance and uh that's that's very scary to me uh you you mentioned one of the um I think it was the Civil War generals who yeah. um, had all of the pedigree, West Point grad. He had done Yeah, George the, McClellan. And then once he got into that role, he was paralyzed. Yeah, he was paralyzed because I think he was so convinced that he was right for the job and that all the stars had aligned in his favor that he didn't know what to do when it actually was hard. Right. Um, you know, they've done studies like on kids where it's like if you tell a kid that they're successful because they're smart versus you tell a kid that they're successful or they did well because they worked hard. 
one builds builds a sort a, a certain resiliency and um acumen and the other builds kind of like an entitlement mm. and uh and uh an easily frustrated uh mindset and and i think i th- i think that's what happened to mcclellan it was like everything had gone so well in his life that when the facts didn't line up with his perceptions he was like, the facts are wrong. <laughs> right, know? right. <laughs> um, so I want to dive into your experience writing this book. Okay. Like, you just sat down and you went from beginning to end. You just penned this out. And it just came to you like like white on rice, like no, wind on a all. warm spring day. That's not how books go at all. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I started... Uh, with a very different idea for what the book would be, and it pivoted a number of times. And the the hardest part of a book is the research. The research comes first. Writing is, I don't want to say easy, because it's not easy, but writing is impossible without having laid the foundation and sketched the thing out from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the hard part of a book is. It's you know months and months and months of research before you get to do the the sexy part, which is, you know, as Hemingway would say, sitting down and opening a vein, right? Uh, and and so it, I think a lot of people have an idea for a book and they think it would be fun to write a book. So they sort of skip that phase in the middle where they have to go, you know, figure out what the hell is in the book. And you probably had a mass i think i think i think it was you didn't you like do like the three by five card or four by six card type of thing like yeah i do i use four by four by six note cards and this book would have been you know two or three thousand of those Mm. and so you took every little epiphany every little nugget that coincided and supported what you were trying to accomplish and then use that i mean it's brilliant because yeah, I mean, it, it really I mean, connected. I was listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast this morning and he had Sebastian Younger on and Sebastian was saying he had this quote. He said, don't try to solve a research problem with language. And so I wrote that down. It's on this note card and it's on my desk and it'll go. I'm working on a uh, on a book about writing right now and I'll probably use that note card. Mm-hmm. And so you can get inspiration and information and research from so many different sources but if you don't write it down, it doesn't count. Yeah. So how many times did you have to do the draft of this book? It would be very hard to count, but um, I'll say this. I think I turned it in. It was – I think I turned it in for the first time in May of 2015, and it wasn't accepted by the publisher – until February of 2016, and it wasn't. I didn't do my last edit until maybe two months ago. Mm. So uh, uh, a long, long, long time. Almost a, basically a year of editing on top of a year of writing. And uh, as someone who's written a book, I I, I know that editing is like dissecting your own, your own baby. That's exactly right. It's like like doing surgery on your arm by yourself. So while you were going through the editing process, how did you have to contend with your own ego? 
So one of the things that I think is interesting about Ego is, okay, so your editor sends you back a draft and it's covered in notes. Ego says, uh, screw this. You're totally wrong. You don't get me at all. I'm not doing any of this, right? right. So that's, I think that's a pretty common, relatable reaction. I'm not saying you shouldn't have that reaction or that you you can somehow through meditation prevent you from ever <laughs> feeling that way, right. right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, can you resist the urge to write that in an email and send it two seconds after the draft comes in? I think what I'm trying to talk about in this book is like, okay, that's how I feel. I'm going to take a break now mm-hmm. and I'm going to come back to this in a couple of days and I'm going to, I'm going to put in the stuff that I agree with, you know, I'm going to put in the stuff that I think is right. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, actually, I agree with all of it. And actually, I'm going to take it even further and change even more things now that I look at it, you know? So it's like, you went from thinking this thing was perfect yeah. to, uh, I will never change anything to, okay, maybe I'll change a little thing to, okay, I have to change everything. Yeah. And so but you can't do that if you are in the sway of your ego completely. Mm. So the solution for battling these voices in our head and in our hearts, these systems which psychology would say are built on the synopsis of pain and bruising from our past, and now we want to compensate in a way that's healthy and we want to bring wholeness and healthy mindset. How does one go about that? I think it's a it's a process. I mean, what I was just talking about is exactly it. It's not, hey, look, if you get in a car accident, you're going to have a hormonal adrenal response to what happened. You're going to be scared. You're going to be shaken up. Fine. But you decide whether you get in a car again, right? Uh, you decide whether you swear off driving altogether or you say, hey, I'm, you know, it wasn't safe to drive at night. I'm not going to drive at night that way anymore or whatever. So I it's 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 not that you strip yourself of ego altogether, but you fight against the ego and you make sure that it doesn't really make decisions for you, mm. that you're not blindly following it wherever it jerks you around. I remember there was an old saying that said, um, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. That's great. I love it. And it's kind of along the same lines. And here's some other solutions that I'm going to pull from your book here. And it talks about going out into the wilderness. And throughout history, we've seen people who got away. And they come back with inspiration, with a plan, with an experience that puts them on a course that changes the world. It's because in doing so, they found perspective. They understood the larger picture in a way that wasn't possible in the bustle of everyday life. Silencing the noise around them, they could finally hear the quiet voice they needed to listen to. Creativity is a matter of receptiveness and recognition, and this cannot happen if you're convinced the world revolves around you. I, I try to, you know, I live outside the city. I try to spend as much time as I can outdoors. I try to detach from my phone and my work. I think, you know, ego is, ego believes that what you're doing right now is the most important thing in the entire world and that the world cannot exist if you don't focus on it right now. And I think, you know, you only have to walk out into the woods for two seconds to realize how preposterous that idea is or, you know, jump into the ocean 
and realize that there are forces at work that are far greater than you can really imagine. You don't have to be religious to have that feeling. And often if you are not religious, you need to you need to cultivate that feeling more than a religious person does because you don't have it in your life. And so I, I think, I think the majesty of nature is a, is a, you know, an, a, an ego killer for sure. I was out with my family this weekend. I'm in the process of building two startups at the same time. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Burning the candle on both ends and at the same time striving with great intention to give my family its proper affections. Sure. And so this weekend I put the laptop down and I said for the next 3 days over this holiday weekend I'm doing nothing. Right. And I moved to Nashville just this last year and uh we just adventured. I there were many places in all of my business I have not been able to explore. Right. And I found lakes, I found marinas, I found restaurants, I found state parks, I found skipping rocks with my kids, and I got centered. Yeah. I mean, look, I live in Austin for the same reason. I think it's harder to find that in New York City. It's certainly possible. It's just harder. It's harder to find it in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Singapore or London. And so if you can make some lifestyle decisions that, that keep you connected to that it it helps it helps with the ego and i think another part of it um which we haven't really dive into is is the element of comparison mm -hmm. looking at um i just told somebody this just this week i said you know we look at our beginning and or our middle and we look at somebody else's end yeah look i mean in austin my neighbors are hog farmers right so i'm not oh did you hit the new york times bestseller list you know i'm not <laughs> I don't have to think about that, you know, um, and it's who knows, maybe they're happier than I am. Right. So so it's you, you get to experience life outside your own bubble. I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. Happiness is not something we chase after. It's it's an internal thing, not an external thing. That's right. That's totally right. And but often we think, hey, if I accomplish all these things, I will be happy. And it doesn't work that way. Well, because when I get to this, there's going to be that, and then I get sure. to that, and then there's going to be another that. and Or a... or you get there, and then you find out that so-and-so has this other thing, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're not happy with what you have anymore. Uh, we are victims of our own chaos. Absolutely victims of our own chaos. Yes. So I want to kind of bring us in for a landing Okay. Um, I want to read a couple more things, and I just want to give you maybe the, the final word. Okay. In the end, the only way you can appreciate your progress is to stand at the edge of the hole you dug for yourself, look down inside it, and smile fondly at the bloody claw prints that, that marked your journey up the walls. I... Go ahead. Read that, embraced that, I hugged that, and, and took it to the ground. Well, one of my favorite sayings is that the first rule of holes is when you're in one to stop digging. Um, and I, I think I think that's the first step, right? It's just like, hey, I'm in this hole. I'm not going to make it worse. And then, only then, when you've stopped making it worse, can you can you make your way out of it? Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a perverse pleasure in seeing, hey, I can't believe I, I let things get so bad, but, but, I, but I made it better. Mm -hmm. 
For us, the scoreboard can't be the only scoreboard. Warren Buffett has said the same thing, making a distinction between the inner scorecard and the external one. Your potential, the absolute best you're capable of, that's the metric to measure yourself against. Your standards are, your winning is not enough. People can get lucky and win. People can be assholes and win. Anyone can win, but not everyone is the best possible version of themselves. I I think um, it's easy to... John Wooden, uh, the basketball coach, he would talk about how just because his team won didn't mean they were successful. And, and he said they were successful often when they lost. They were successful because they did what they were supposed to do and they followed the plan that they laid out together and everyone had done their jobs right. And I love that attitude because, you know, think about all the activists who pursued a cause that was ahead of its time or an author who wrote a book that was too early or too late or, you know, a leader who fought for something and it, you know, didn't work out. Should they have not have done it? Are they a failure because they didn't win or, are they actually even more admirable because they tried, even though the odds weren't that great? And so I just think, um, obviously, look, the external scorecard or scoreboard matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. But having having a metric that you hold yourself to that's even higher than that, I think, is a, is a recipe for a greater kind of success. Mm. I, and you you echo that a couple times throughout this book um so here's here's my um request from you before i read this last okay kind of punctuation exclamation something or other point here for those who are listening obviously they haven't read your book yet who are in the midst of the struggle because even if you're pursuing it for the right reasons and you give stories of people who did things for the right reasons and it didn't always feel good it didn't always, in the moment, go the way one would think a person of character should experience. It wasn't as redemptive in that moment. So someone who's in the funk, you know, um, trying to do the right thing, working with someone that might be an egoist. Can I call it that? Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, yeah. Or someone they themselves are struggling with their own ego. What would you share with them? And remember, the name of this podcast is Up In Your Business. Yeah, so I might play on that that a little bit and you know i love the stoics they talk over and over again about sort of what is your business and what's not your business right and um focusing exclusively on yourself right so i'm putting out this book i think i wrote a great book i'm proud of it i'm obviously marketing it but at the end of the day i can't make people buy it and i can't make them like it and if if this goes to the internal scorecard it's like I'm, I think it's a success already because I know that it's the best that I can do. And I know that the people whose opinions matter to me, uh, I, I know that it sort of went through their, their machine and it came out the other side. It worked. So whether it sells one copy or a million copies, I already won, right? And I think you that that's a great attitude in success because it means – Hey, it's not going to go to your head, but it's a better attitude for when things really do go to shit. Mm -hmm. Because let's say it does sell one copy 
if I didn't have that attitude, I'd be devastated. Um, but since I don't, I can I can say, hey, look, I did the best that I could. I, I don't know why it wasn't appreciated. Maybe it was this factor or that factor, but I don't have time for that. I'm going to focus on the next thing. And I think that's the same thing. You, you know, you, you don't like your boss. Great. Don't try to change your boss. Try to change yourself because you mm. do control that. Try to, you, you know, your boss doesn't appreciate all the great things that you do. Is that an excuse to stop doing them? I don't think so. Keep doing them and find another job, yep. you know? Um, and, and so, so it's, it's about focusing, making the distinction between what you control and what you don't control and focusing exclusively on what you do control, which is almost always yourself and your attitude and your perceptions. There is no way around it. We will experience difficulty. We will feel the touch of failure. As Benjamin Franklin observed, those who drink to the bottom of the cup must expect to meet with some of the dregs. But what if some of those dregs weren't so bad? As Harold Ganin put it, people learn from their failures. Seldom do they learn from success. It's why the old Celtic saying tells us, see much, study much, suffer much, that is the path to wisdom. What you face right now could, should, and can be such a path. Wisdom or ignorance? Ego is the swing vote. Ryan, if people want to get a hold of you, they want to track you down, where can they go? Uh, so my website's ryanholiday.net. You can email me at ryanholiday@gmail.com, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll like the book. It should be available everywhere that they have books. So go and buy two copies, one for you and one to give to somebody who needs it. This is awesome. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I am so grateful for Ryan joining us on the show today. Man, you know, one of the things that I am just continuing to chew on is the whole concept of, you know, even in our insecurity, our pain, um, our, our, our sense of, of lack, like that can be something that compels us to perform at high levels. And that's just such junk, like crappy motives, and yet it's so true. And when Ryan was talking about that, I, it made me kind of step back and say, gosh, where are areas of my life where maybe my motivation or ambition is built on something that doesn't have strength to it? You know, kind of like shifting sands. It's not a foundation of stone, but it's something that is built on weakness. And... You know, nothing comes to mind um, right now, but I am super sensitive to it. Like, I'm watching my motives. And I just want to invite you to take some time to maybe meditate on that yourself. Are there areas where you are operating out of desperation, out of seeking approval, out of uh, a less-than mindset? You're, just, you're so ambitious because of things that are actually weakness and you're building whatever it is that you're working on upon a foundation that could fail you. Man, that's, that's like some stark realities right there. And so I'm, I'm questioning my motives on some of the things I'm doing. At the same time, I find myself 
growing super grateful for the dark times of my life. Um, when I fell, uh, for those of you that know my story, when I went through my time of addiction and workaholism, you know, I was involved in pornography and, and alcohol. I went through a divorce. Um, I, I hurt a lot of people during that time when I was super selfish, narcissistic, um, Obviously, I didn't know any better at the time, um, but that doesn't excuse the pain that I caused. But here's the thing. At least when I fell, it was kind of in obscurity. I mean, yeah, it was my hometown and the people there that knew, that was really humiliating. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, But at least I wasn't in a place where I had a pedestal of some kind of fame or grandeur or notoriety. I'll tell you what. If you're going to fail, fail small. If you're going to want to need to make corrections, do it now. Do it before it hurts even more people. And that was something else I thought about. You know, just the ability for our own ego to both build us up and propel us and at the same time tear us down. Really powerful concepts to, to think about. And if that's not getting up in your business, I don't know what is. So I would love to hear what your thoughts are about today's program. Thank you so very much for joining. I know that your time is precious, so being a part of today's uh, program um, I'm, I'm just, I'm deeply grateful. Come and find me on Twitter. I'm at Angus Nelson, just at Angus Nelson. And you can find me there, connect with me. If you want to follow up on the links of any of the things we talked about today, the show notes to find a link to, uh, the book that Ryan wrote, you can find all of this for this episode simply at angusnelson.com forward slash zero four one. I'd also like to encourage you to join our Facebook group. It is a private group for open dialogue and some places where I bounce ideas off people and you're welcome to do the same. You can go to Facebook and type in up in your business private group uh, request entry. I'll make sure you get into the community. You can also find that link uh, on the show notes. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give is a referral to someone else either by giving in person or shared on the web. Live intentionally, love extravagantly, and lead with self-awareness. Be amazing. Thanks for listening to the Up In Your Business podcast with Angus Nelson. Find more at upinyourbusiness.co. Remember, that's .co, not com.